John chapter 19, as we continue our process uh, from Jesus' trial to his resurrection, this week we're going to talk about the crucifixion, the cross. Uh, It is one of the darkest times in the Bible, but at the same time, the most powerful time. And it continues the paradox of Christianity where God puts two things together that don't seem like they should go together. It don't make sense. John chapter 19, we're going to read from 17 down to verse 30. We'll be focusing on, on just verses 25 through 30, but we'll read the whole passage for context. So if you were here last week, Jesus was put on trial uh, by the religious leaders of his time, the Jewish leaders, and they had a mock trial, sort of a kangaroo court, middle of the night. And they took him to Pilate, the Roman governor, because the Jews couldn't kill Jesus, and that was their goal. So they took him to the Roman governor who ruled, ruled over them and basically uh, gave up every shred of dignity and religious uh, integrity, claiming Caesar as king and denouncing God as king so they could kill Jesus. And Pilate tried to resist, but he was weak, and he gave in and chose power over uh, the truth. Jesus did not resist any of this because he knew it was his, his path to uh, walk to the cross. And so now Pilate has condemned him, and he's led away to be crucified. And we pick up in verse uh, 17, chapter 19, verse 17. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a, a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it into his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the central act, action, point in history that all of history was moving towards since creation, since before creation. And in it, we see that the king of the Jews, the king of the world, is killed, 
crucified, which is much worse than we can imagine, especially since we've never been in a culture where someone's been crucified. So the king is crucified. So when we ask, what is the central truth of Christianity? What is the one thing that everything else is built on? This action is it. Christ being crucified. Paul said, I've determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's quite a statement. He's saying everything that I'm going to talk to you about, and Paul wrote most of the New Testament, is going to be built on this one thing, Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And here we have the account of it. So the central truth of Christianity is laid out here. And what we're going to look at is in these verses 25 through 30, Jesus said three things at the end. Now, he kept quiet most of this time, despite the horrible suffering. But finally, at the end, he makes three statements. And each of these three statements reveal who he is and what he was doing. It reveals Christianity to us. It shows us that the cross creates a new family through the suffering of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And he says it through his words. There's a new family through the suffering that he endured on the cross, and then finally what all of that led up to and what it accomplished. So look at the first thing here. What happened at the cross? So imagine you're there. You're in an open place, very public. Jesus has been crucified between two other uh, political prisoners. They were rebel fighters. They were guerrilla fighters or terrorists. He was crucified in the middle of them, which means he was classed among them. Uh, he was killed because the Roman government said that he was a, uh, a rebel. He was causing an uprising. And there around him, there were other people, Roman soldiers, Jews who were making fun of him, mocking him, but also his, some of his followers who had followed him to the cross and were now observing their leader be horribly crucified. And so there's four people here. There's more, but there's only four mentioned here, or five mentioned because of the purpose of the passage. There's his mother, his mother's sister, another woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. That's four different people. That's not two people named Mary. That's uh, mother, unnamed, his mother's sister, unnamed, and then two Marys. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you're not familiar with the book of John, John wrote it, but he never names himself. He always refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved or the other disciple. And he was an eyewitness to this account. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, therefore, uh, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. John is an eyewitness, which gives credibility to what this story is happening. It's not hearsay. John wrote this. We actually have parts of this book that's like a, a copy of John that uh, comes from within about 60 years of being written. That's a long time ago. So just if you, why should we believe this? It's God's word, but how do we know we have the right copy? Because we have parts of this, chapter 18 specifically, that date from about 150 A.D. So within the lifetime of the children of these people, uh, we have a copy. So what was 60 years ago? That was the 50s. So we're not dealing with manuscript copies of eyewitness accounts that have been copied for thousands of years. We have sources that are really close to it. And that's important because the details given here are not general truths. They're specific eyewitness accounts 
of words being said, of actions taking place. And the details given don't fit into sort of a myth. They fit into a historical account. And so we look here, it says there are four people there. Not just groups of people or followers, but four specific people by name and the disciple whom Jesus loved, the eyewitness who wrote the, the account. And he says, Jesus says, woman, which is not a disrespectful term at this time. It would be something like ma'am or lady or, or something like that. He says, woman, behold your son. Talking to John, speaking of John. And then to his disciple, behold your mother. What's happening here? Jesus is not in a good place, obviously. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. So why does he take time, why does the author take time to record these words? So you have to understand the culture at this time. When someone became old and their husband died, which apparently happened with Mary, an elderly lady in a patriarchal society with no social network was basically abandoned. There was no healthcare program, there was no social security, there was nothing. When her husband died, she was alone. So the only thing that would happen was if she had grown children, they would care for her. And that's how society worked. And if they didn't care for her, if she didn't have any children, it was bad. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying to his mother, who he had been caring for, I'm dying. Your caretaker is dying and you're going to be on your own. So he turns to John and says, John, you care for her. She's now your mother. He's handing over the care of his mother to somebody else. It's the elder care program of this time. So Jesus, in his last minutes, is doing this. Now, why is he doing this? Why is this important? Why didn't he take care of this beforehand? Well, the bigger question is, why didn't Jesus' brothers take care of his mother? Jesus had brothers. John chapter 7 uh, talks about them. But it also says that his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't follow Jesus. His own brothers rejected Christ. So what Jesus is saying here at the cross, in his last moments, he's saying, John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son. Not those other children. That's a powerful statement. He's saying, you have a new family. And I don't mean that in a general sense. I mean specifically a new social family. Your other sons should have taken care of you, but they're not going to. Your real son is going to take care of you, John. Your real family. Now, we don't think of real family in those, in those terms. That's why Jesus took his last breaths to say to us, here's who the real family is. It's those at the cross. It's not blood relatives who don't follow Christ. True family are those who stand before the cross. Now, later, his brothers would come to Christ, which is a great moment. But at this time, Mary's sons didn't follow Christ. And so Christ is reorganizing the family. Now, he says this in Matthew chapter 12. He was, he was meeting with people, and he says, while he was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak to him. That family connection, you know. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Right, understand that he's speaking, his family shows up, and what do you do when your family shows up? They sort of get a backstage pass. They want to speak to you, so you go talk to them and say, hey, my family, I got to talk to my family. But what does he say? But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? 
And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when we say the church is a family, sometimes that comes across as we just act like a family, or we care for each other like a family, or we treat each other as a family. What Jesus is saying here in these last moments, he's saying your family in every sense of the word, even who takes care of someone. You see how practical the family is? It's not treat them like family. It's be a real family so that who cares for the elderly people, not their own children? The church does. Can you imagine a church like that? Can you imagine this church where the young people in this church take on the responsibility of caring for the old people? That's not how it works, is it? Family gets that responsibility. But what Jesus is saying is in the new family, every aspect of you becomes part of the church. It's such a radical statement that it's hard to comprehend that your own children are not responsible for you, but the church is. Now, what happens with that? The church doesn't do it. We can't trust the church to do it. We trust our own family more than we trust the church. Why is that? Because we don't see what's happening here. We're not following Christ. Because here's what Christ says. Here's your new family, those who follow me. He's telling Mary, don't view your blood relatives like you view John the disciple. And he's telling us the same thing. You look at the members of this church, they're the ones that should be taking care of you more than your own family. That's a hard saying. Who can hear it? But Jesus doesn't. When someone's dying on a cross, they say things they mean. He wants you to know this is how it is. When he said, these are my brothers and sisters, not my blood ones, in a meeting, everyone's like, oh, okay. But when he's on the cross dying, and he's handing over the actual physical care of his own family, he gives it to one of his disciples. He doesn't give it to one of his family, to one of his brothers. That's a radical Christianity that turns everything upside down. The world can't understand that. And as much as we're a part of the world, we can't understand it. Family, blood is thicker than water, right? You know what that means? The blood that runs through your veins is more important than the baptism water that you were put into. Blood is thicker than water. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying your baptism water is thicker than your family blood. And he said it while he was dying. He said it as one of the things, the last things he wanted to leave with his disciples. On the cross, in a moment of complete Failure, as it were, he said, remember who your family is. Remember who's supposed to take care of you. It's my followers. This is the kind of community we have. The kind of community where Jesus Christ says, I'm going to create a new family, and to do that, I have to create space for that family. And I will go to any lengths to create space. Him being on the cross is him saying, I'm going to create a new family, but the only way to do that is to die, so I'll die. Is that the kind of community we have? Is that the kind of church we have where we create space to make sure everyone's included? That we'll go to any length to make room? Or we look out for 
us and our own first. See, Christ dying on the cross says, I'll go to any length to make room for you. Any length. So when we follow Christ, we do the same thing. Or we should. That's a kind of community when Jesus says, they shall know you by your love one for another. That's how they'll know us. Did they know that John and Mary followed Christ? Yes. How did they know that? Because they watched John, who's not related to Mary, bring Mary into his own home and care for her. And they said, why would you do that? She has sons to take care. And John says, because I love Christ and I love her. And the world says, no one does that. Exactly. Except for Christ's followers. So when we think about love for one another and being a community and being a family, it's practical. It's very practical. It's what's so practical that he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to assume the care of people in our church who can't care for themselves? There's two kind of people in society that no one wants. Kids and old people. Why? Well, can you hear them? They're a pain in the neck. Look at all my kids back there. Kids are a drag. Kids weigh on you. Kids take your time. Kids distract. Kids make it hard to listen. No one cares more about loud kids than the guy speaking at the front. And so just because my own kids doesn't mean I want them to be loud. So what does society do? It pushes them away. It puts them out of sight. It gets rid of them so we can enjoy life. What does it do with elderly people? Well, it depends on how useful you are. But if you're not useful, we don't have time for you. We want to see young, healthy people. That's why euthanasia exists, assisted suicide, because we don't have space for them. We want people who can contribute. And if you can't contribute, we don't have time for you. So we celebrate the cult of youth. Not children, but strong people. Jesus is doing the opposite here. He's saying, if you're in, you're in. We care for those who can't care for themselves. That's the kind of community we have. We put up with things we don't like because they're part of us. And it's hard sometimes. Do you think it was easy for John to take in this woman to care for for the rest of her life? No, but that's what he did because that's what he did to follow Christ. Let's look at our own church and see, are we doing that? Are we following Christ? Are we making room for people who drag us, who, who weigh us down, who, who suck resources from us? Because that's what Christians do. That's what love does. But look what he's doing on the cross. So he's, he's showing this new family. But that new family doesn't happen by itself, does it? It goes against everything inside of us. It goes against nature. It goes against culture. It goes against everything. So how does it happen? Well, his next words show us. After this, after he'd said this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled it with sponge with sour wine and put it on his up and put it into his mouth. Sour wine is like a vinegar wine. It's very cheap. It's very bitter. It's very nasty. The soldiers used it, so you can imagine soldiers making homemade wine on the frontier out of vinegar. It's pretty low quality. And if you've ever, have anybody ever had vinegar? Yeah, it's, Bible actually uses an example of how it makes your teeth hurt. 
set your teeth on edge. So what it's saying here is Jesus says, I thirst. Now that sounds pretty normal, right? Has anybody ever said I'm thirsty? You notice I always have a bottle of water up here that I never drink? It's my safety water, just in case. He didn't say he was thirsty when he was getting beaten. He didn't say he was thirsty when he was hanging on the cross for hours. So this is the end. This is after he's been up there for hours. Why now does he say, I thirst? Well, do you know what happens when you get crucified? It's a horrible process. So I'm going to describe it to you. And it's a little rough, but it's the core of our faith. So when you got crucified, they would take you and they would beat you. And depending on how much they didn't like you and how much they want to make an example would be how bad. Some people died when they were beaten. They were beaten so badly, they, just, they, were, they, they died from it. Jesus didn't die from it, partly because he was probably so physically strong because he was a carpenter and he walked everywhere and he was very physically capable. And because of who he was, he took care of himself. So he was beaten, but he could not even carry his own cross all the way. So the beam that goes on the cross, they would carry that themselves. So he carried it part of the way, and it says that here, but then someone else had to carry the rest of the way for it because of the blood loss. Then they would lay you down, and they would tie your arms to the cross, or they would drive nails into them. Now, it says his hands, uh, which it may have been his hands, but it also could have been his wrists, so part of the hand region. You know there's a nerve that runs through your wrist? Feel your wrist right now. Feel how that's sensitive? It's called the median nerve. They drove a nail through it. Then they put his, they drove a nail through his feet. Then they hung the cross up. So then you were hanging from your hands and your feet. Do you know why they nailed your feet in? Because when your arms are outstretched like that, it puts all the weight on your chest cavity. Your entire body is hanging. So you can't breathe. So then you have to use your feet to push yourself up to take a breath. But that hurts. So then you let yourself down and you hang on your hands again. This goes on for hours, sometimes days. So you're, you're torn between the nails and your nerve system dragging and the fact that you can't breathe. Then you hang out in the sun. And if you've ever been to the Middle East, it's hot over there. So you became dehydrated. So you're in the sun. You're losing blood at extreme rate. Your body's being racked. You can't breathe. Your nerves are stretched uh, thin. And so the way you would die is you would lose strength and you would suffocate. You would no longer be able to lift yourself up. And if you notice in the next passage, when they wanted to kill them, they would break their leg. Why? Because if your leg's broken, you can't push up anymore and you would suffocate. That's what Jesus is going through. Now, if you know anything about uh, trauma, when you're beaten and you start losing blood, you go into shock. And you become very dehydrated and you have an unquenchable thirst. If you read about battlefield accounts, men who are wounded on the battlefield, what do they want? Water. Because this thirst just consumes you because of the blood loss. So that's what's happening here, partly. He's saying something. He says it at the end. He's going to die a minute later. He's saying, I thirst. Why? So that you know how bad it is. That he wasn't sort of disconnected from his body. That he was there and he felt it. He physically felt the suffering. That's important. It's gruesome, but it's important. Jesus did not just suffer in his head. He suffered physically. He, it hurt him to die like this in a way that we really can't even imagine. And what did they do? Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. 
He was thirsty and they gave him vinegar wine. That's not what you want when you're thirsty. So it increased his suffering. But more importantly, as bad as that is, imagine how bad that is. That wasn't the worst of it. Because people can go through that and have gone through that. Physical suffering can be endured, especially if you have a good cause that you're fighting for. But what really hurt here was the spiritual suffering, the spiritual thirst. Now, how do we know that he was spiritually thirsty? Because it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. There's more going on here than just the physical pain. In Psalm chapter 22, in verse 15, it's the Old Testament, he's referring back. The first words of, of Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which he quotes at this point in another passage. But in verse 15, it says, My strength is dried up like a pot shirt like a broken piece of pottery, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. He's not talking about physical pain. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that I'm consumed by thirst? Psalm 69 says, reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. They also gave me vinegar for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. He said, I was thirsty. My heart was broken, and they gave me vinegar. It's not this physical problem that he's talking about. He has been separated from God. The Son of God, God himself, is separated from the Father in a way we can't comprehend. And it's consuming his soul like thirst. Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's a soul thirst. There's something inside of Jesus and in all of us that needs God. But up until this point, Jesus had it. Fully satisfied. He was never thirsty like he was now. He never thirsted for God's presence because he was always connected with the Father. But now he says, I thirst, so the scripture would be fulfilled. The scripture that says, I've been forsaken, and my soul is thirsty. Another way to put this is, Jesus went to hell. This is hell, in a literal sense, separated from God, burning with this unquenchable thirst that needs life and is cut off from it. The Apostles' Creed said that he descended into hell for us. This is what's happening here. He said, I thirst. I need God's presence, and I don't have it. I am in hell. I am suffering the ultimate pain, the ultimate sense of loss. The cost of sin fully applied for the first time. Never before had sin been fully paid. Nobody before Christ had ever paid the full cost of sin. They'd never seen it. No one knew what it looked like to bear all of God's wrath until this moment right here. And it looks like a man dying for someone to give him a drink, and he gets none. Spiritually begging God to be with him, and God says no. The eternity of being, what we think of being in hell, is on Christ at this moment. 
In John 4, 10, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, he's talking to a woman at the well years before this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But here, Jesus asked God for living water and God says, no. Jesus says, please give me something to drink. God, please give me living water. And God says, no. You can't have it. And Jesus says, I thirst. And God turned his face away from him. So that the scriptures could be fulfilled. That, that is the suffering that we see in this cross. So when God says, when Jesus says to, to John, take care of Mary, make room, he does it while he's suffering in hell. You want to have a family like this? See what Christ did for it. See how he suffered for it. But what did that accomplish? Because other people can suffer. But what did it accomplish? Was the suffering for nothing? Was it just an example of how much God loves us? No, because that's not the last thing Jesus said. So when Jesus had received the sour wine and had fulfilled the scripture, he said, it is finished. It's finished. That word there, it's one word. And it's also used up in verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, uh, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, same word. One word in Greek, tetelestai. Uh, it has a special meaning. It doesn't mean you're done with sort of a journey. It means you fulfilled every part of the plan. You had a mission, and you finished it. Remember when George Bush went over and on that aircraft carrier, and there was a big banner that said, Mission Accomplished. But then for like 15 years, we're still over there. That's, that's the same word here, but with a different meaning. When he says, it is finished, he's saying he's completed an activity or a process. He's completed it. It's fulfilled. He says, I've done it. Mission Accomplished. Jesus, while stretched down the cross with no power, so weak that if you took him off the cross, he would have died anyway, says, I've done it. The most helpless man in the world triumphantly says, mission accomplished, and then dies. What did he accomplish? See, this sounds impossible. How do you accomplish anything while you're being crucified? You ever heard of Don Quixote? He uh, had some fantasical ideas. He, he didn't understand reality, and so he went tilting after windmills. And there's a, there's a show up based on in a song called The Impossible Dream. Impossible, it's just, it'd be nice, but it's not going to happen. He says, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. But that's impossible, because everyone that goes to hell doesn't come back. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He's marching into hell for us. Do you believe this? I don't think you do. And I don't think I do. Now we believe a little bit. But let's test ourselves, because we know the answer is right. Did he finish it? Did he finish what he came to do? Yes. Let's see if you believe it. There's three kinds of people that don't believe this. And I think it describes us. One it's the Christian with an inferiority complex. You beat yourself up. 
You call yourself names. You feel like you're punished. You feel inadequate. You never live up. You're like, man, why are you so stupid? Why do you fail all the time? Why are you such a loser? You're terrible. You're nobody. God's punishing me because I'm a terrible person and I deserve it. You're defensive. Any sort of criticism, you're like, you're real defensive because you're, you feel so bad about yourself. You're a worm. You're nobody. But you all, you're trying to take Christ's work. See, he said, it is finished. Not, I'll do most of it, and then you get a little bit of it. He's saying, I did all of the punishment that you think you're getting. You think you're a nobody, but Christ became a nobody and said, I've completed all of it. So if you beat yourself up, you say, I'm trying to be real. No, you're trying to be Christ. Christ was beaten up for you. All the beating. No more beating left. When it says it is finished, he said, you don't get to do anymore. So if you're a Christian, you don't get to be punished. You don't have a right to be punished. God says, Christ takes the punishment, not you. That's the, the verse we read in the early morning, uh, early part of the morning. His stripes were on us. His suffering was, uh, his, our suffering was on him. The chastisement of our peace was on him. He suffered so we could be righteous. Now we're trying to suffer too, trying to beat ourselves up a little bit, take ourselves down, humiliate ourselves to make, us, make ourselves be better. That's taking from Christ. When it says Jesus paid it all, it means you don't get to pay anything. You don't get one ounce of punishment for anything you've ever done if you're a Christian. Nothing that, if you're a believer in Christ, nothing in your life that ever happens or ever is going to happen is punishment. Or it's not finished. You see how powerful this word is if you feel bad about yourself? If you're punishing yourself, if you feel lowly, you're trying to take away from Jesus. Do you believe that he took it all? Do you believe that it is finished? Then you don't need to punish yourself. But there's another kind of Christian uh, who has a superiority complex. Now, here's the thing about superiority complexes. This is the moment where you're going to say, that person over there has got this. I know he's got it. I know somebody like this. Yeah, you do know somebody like this. So at this moment, take a mental exercise. If you don't think it's you, it is you. That's how you know it's you. Because people with pride issues never think it's them. Pride issues do this. That guy's got pride issues. You kind of look, I hope he's paying attention. That's a sure sign that you've got pride issues. People who are humble say, it's me. I'm the one who needs it. So what does the superiority complex do? You can't stand to be around people who don't live or act right. You can't stand to be around people who don't live or act right. You are morally better than them. You do live and act right. You do what you're supposed to. You hold grudges because you wouldn't have done that. You hold on to stuff that people have done because you're better than them. When you say, I could have done the same thing, you don't hold a grudge for that for very long. But if you feel you're better than them, you hold on to it. You're saying, I'll do some of the work, but I'm doing a good job at it. People who punish themselves say, I'm doing a bad job at it. People who are like this, 
If you're like this, you're doing a pretty good job at it. I mean, Christ, thank you for doing the stuff I couldn't do, but I got the rest. And too bad those other people can't do it. And when they do something wrong, we're going to make sure they remember it because we're going to remember it. It is finished means you don't get to hold on to anything. Christ gets to hold on to everything. Then there's the people who are driven, who are addicted. Driven by work, by family, by drugs, by whatever it is that you are compulsively brought back to. What's happened here? The world's going to tell you, and they're partly right, you don't like yourself. So you do things to make yourself feel better. You're not satisfied with your life. So you do heroin. You don't feel complete. So you work. You need somebody to satisfy you so you find a relationship. You're looking for something to complete you. You don't believe that Jesus completed you. Because it says, it is accomplished. It's done. Everything that you need is done right at this moment. That was 2,000 years ago. So when you're looking for more, you're practically saying, Christ, you didn't do enough. I need this thing over here too to really fill it up to top it off. I need that promotion. I need that money. I need that relationship. I need that physical pleasure to satisfy. But Christ says it's finished. Are you like one of those people? I think I'm like all three of those people sometimes. How do you fix it? You don't. You don't fix it. You can't fix it. And if you could fix it, then Jesus wasted his time. So what do you need to do? You need to believe that Jesus already did it. You don't do anything. You receive what was done for you. Christ says his last words, it is finished. What did he finish? He took away our sin. That was his mission. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. First time we see Jesus in John. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He hadn't taken it away yet. Now Jesus says, it's finished. Taken away the sin. There's no more sin left. Taken it on myself. He satisfies God's punishment. Isaiah 53 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God has put him to grief. What? Satan didn't punish him? No, God punished Jesus. Because God needed punishment for sin. And Jesus says, it's accomplished. It's finished. God has given me all the punishment that he has, and I've completed it. I've satisfied it. By his knowledge, he says, and God shall see the labor of his soul, of Jesus' soul, and be satisfied. See God satisfied, happy that Jesus died. And since he finished it, he can be happy with you. If you're a believer, God is perfectly happy with you. He is satisfied with you. He looks at you and says, you're perfect. Why? Because Jesus took all the bad stuff, and God is satisfied. Jesus set things right. His mission was to set things right. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 11, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. You know what justify means? It means to set things right. It means to put things in order. It means everything you're trying to set right in your life, Christ already did it. It's complete. You're like, but my life's not right. How do you know? How do you know what right looks like? 
God knows what right looks like, and it says that he was satisfied and his righteous servant justified many. You have to look at your life and say, I don't know what's going on. You look at your feelings and say, I don't know what's right. Then you look at Jesus and say, that's right. That's done. I don't know anything else except for Jesus paid it all. That's all I need to know. Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words, it is finished. Are you going to follow Buddha? Are you going to follow someone who says, never stop working? Or are you going to follow Christ who says, it's done and I did it? The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the last part of that chapter, it says, And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Are you thirsty? Nothing's going to fill it except for Jesus. He took the thirst and finished it. So if you want water, Christ has it, and he's the only one that has it. Turn away from everything else that you're trusting in and trust in Christ's finished work. Let's pray.